the, the age in which the gospel of the kingdom is being preached. The, the people who receive the gospel, they become sons of the kingdom. And this describes this present dispensation uh, that, that we now currently live in. We see an example of this in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, we've talked about this not too long ago. It says, He delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We live in this dispensation, this age that He's describing. But at the end of that age, there will be a great harvest. It's identified elsewhere as the glorious coming and appearance of the Lord, the second return, or the return of the Lord, excuse me, the second coming of the Lord. And at that time, He describes those who will come and will reap. From the earth, and they're described as angels. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven and nine describe the angels accompanying the Lord in his return with the shout of the archangel. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 49, he talks about how they will separate the wicked from among the just in the parable of the dragnet. So having identified some of these various elements of the parable, we begin to see the main points that Jesus is stressing. In verse 40, he says, I see tares. And number one, I think we should recognize that. That this isn't outside of his view. This isn't somehow escaped his vision. He says, I see the tares. They wake up, the tares have cropped up amongst the wheat, and it's not invisible to him. He's not ignorant to the problem. They are there, but they will not be fully addressed until the harvest. And he says this is done out of consideration, in verse 29, for the good seed. He goes on in verse 41 to say at the end of the age when the Son of Man will finally resolve this problem. It's not that I've just, I see it, but I'm going to ignore it. He says, yes, I know it's there, and yes, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to resolve the problem. When those angels come, they will gather out of the kingdom the things that offend, the things that practice lawlessness, the sons of the wicked one. And then in verse 42, he says that those that are gathered out of his kingdom, they will be properly dealt with. He describes them as being cast into a furnace of fire, a picture uh, constantly used of judgment, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But then he ends in verse 43 saying, however, the blessedness of the righteousness will be that of, of the sun, uh, shining forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So as he expl explains this parable. He does it with the same admonition that has followed some of his, his earlier parable with the sower. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He ties them back together with that phrase. This is something that we need to stop and we need to ponder and we need to think about. Are we guilty of having dull hearing or hard hearts? We need to pay attention to the words that he speaks of here because they're applicable to us. So with that thought, what are some truths that we can learn from this parable? What are some lessons that we can take away from this parable of the wheat and the tares? Well, the first one that I noticed is Jesus is patient. Jesus is long-suffering, and there is a reason behind that. that is a, there, there's a, a reason for that. There's a reason we should be thankful for that. Why does Christ suffer for long periods of time with the wicked that is around us? That's a question that many ask but, uh, as, as you read through the minor prophets. Many of the minor prophets pondered the same question. How long, oh God, are you going to ignore? How long are you going to wait? Don't you see the wicked things that the world is doing? Why aren't you doing something about it? Well, here in this parable, Jesus makes it clear. He says, yes, I do see it. And yes, I am being patient. 
The reason he doesn't come in judgment against the sons of the wicked is given in this. And, and perhaps we should stop and consider maybe the reason that he is not coming in judgment is because of me. He says, I'm doing it for the good seed. Maybe I need time to grow. Maybe there's things in my life that I need to be working on. Maybe there's things in my life that I need to be highlighting and, and committing to try and resolving. It's very clear in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Part of the reason Jesus is patient is because the good seed needs to grow. And if we remember that good seed is those who have heard the word of the God and have become the seed themselves. So another reason he might be patient is because we need to be doing something to help those who are sons of the wicked become sons of righteousness, sons of the kingdom. Christ desires that all men come to repentance. And he has a special interest for those who are sons of the kingdom and especially those who are still growing. Those who still have that to, more to learn, more to, to, to develop into, more fruit to produce. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we're going to say, that's a picture of me. I have more to grow. I have more to learn. I have more to give to the Lord. Jesus is patient. Another thing we see in this parable is that the kingdom is pictured as both a present entity and a, and a future entity as well. In verse 41 and in verse 43, we get examples of this. It says the Son of God will, will gather out of His kingdom. So we see from that is that at the coming of, the, the, uh, of, of Christ, uh, when the angels come to, for the harvest, there is a kingdom established. And in that kingdom are those that belong to God and those who belong to the wicked one. And yet in verse 43, it says, After the harvest, the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their father." So there's a kingdom after the harvest. There's a kingdom after the coming of Christ. And this is taught by Paul as well. Christ rules now, but at a time will turn the kingdom over to the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, towards the end of that letter, he says in verse 23 through 26, But each one has its own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all <coughs> excuse me he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that he will that will be destroyed is death. You know there is this this premillennialistic idea that that at the second coming of Christ he will come and he will reign on earth for a thousand years in in Israel. That he will reestablish this physical kingdom. Much of the same thought that the Jews had when Christ came the first time. This idea that Christ has to come, this Messiah has to come, and he has to establish that, he has to establish that rock that destroyed the statue in, in Dan, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream that we read about in Daniel. They were looking for that physical manifestation. And, and because of their, their misunderstanding of that, they missed the coming Messiah. And for many, we miss the fact that Christ is coming, but his kingdom has been established. His kingdom is here, as we read in 1 Corinthians uh, or in Colossians chapter 1, that we are being conveyed by God into that kingdom. There is a present sense where we are in the kingdom today, and there is also a future sense where we will be living in the kingdom uh, with God reigning over that, as opposed to Jesus when He gives it back to Him. But 
What that brings up then is that while we may be in the kingdom now, we may not be in the kingdom in the future. I want us to note that. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, it says, The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And sometimes I get the feeling that we have this mindset. If I'm in the church, if I've got my name on a duty roster, if I'm at every worship service, if, if I'm there, I'm good. I'm covered. I have everything that I, that I need. I don't have to worry about anything. But Jesus is making it very clear here. There are those who are in my kingdom who will not be in the kingdom in the future, who on that day of judgment will be cast out into a furnace. And he describes them as those who offend, those who cause others to stumble. When Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 7, he's speaking about the little ones around him. And he says, anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be worse for him or better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he was drowned. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there, this issue is going on in Corinth of eating meat offered to idols and and the, the Corinthians apparently seems to have written to Paul to say, hey, can you convince our weaker brethren that there is nothing to idols? They are so upset that we are eating meat offered to idols. They think that it's sinful and, and it's causing trouble here and, and we're having these divisions over it. Can you please help these guys that don't know as much as we do to see things the right way? And Paul's response to them over and over again is the danger of causing people to stumble. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11 through 13, he says, Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died. But when, thus sin, but when you thus sin against your brother, uh, the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He goes on to say again in Romans chapter 10, in verse 31 through, uh, through 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 saying, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. We can also see example of this in Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. When Paul writes to them saying, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Over and over again, the emphasis is placed on those who are causing offense. Something that is, need not be a part of the disciple of Christ. If it is a part of of, of uh, of our life, we very much can expect that in that day of judgment, even though we may inhabit the kingdom today, we won't inhabit it then. It's those who, who, who through their actions, cause others to, to stumble into sin in various ways. And they also talked about those who practice lawlessness, those who do things without authority. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus warned about that. Uh, in, in speaking about those who, who would come to him and say, have we not done all these things? Look at all the things that we've done for you, God. And he says, depart from me, those who practice lawlessness. You may have done great things in the eyes of the world. You may have done many things and said they were in my name. 
but you are working outside of my authority, outside of my law. It's not that he said, I didn't see what you did. It's that you didn't have the authority to do it. In 2 John chapter 9, we also see uh, John speaking about this. 2 John verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. The way to avoid this, the way to avoid lawlessness, the way to avoid working and, and, and acting outside of the authority of Christ is found in, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. When Paul writes there, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through Him. Do all in His name, we sometimes sing. Do all in the name of the Lord. That's carries, as I've already said, that idea of having that stamp of approval. That police officer, when he tells that person to stop in the name of the law, he says, I am approved to stop you. I have the right to stop you. Now, he can't go in and rob a grocery store and say, give me all your money in the name of the law. So I, I, I said I did it in the name. And the law would say, that's not our law. That's lawlessness. You're acting outside of our law. But when he knows the law that he has the right to uphold and the responsibility to uphold, he has the authority to act in that way. And what, that's what Paul is calling on the Colossians to do as well. Let's work, let's act in the name of the Lord as if he could put his stamp of approval on the things that we say, on the things that we do. There's a very real danger. That's the reason that he brings these things up. There's a very real danger of us not entering into our heavenly rest. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the Hebrew author writes, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He puts a focus on the time frame there. Every opportunity we have to be lifting one another up, encouraging one another, because we have become partakers, he says in verse 14, of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You know, he's painting a picture right there. That rebellion that he's speaking of is, is that failure of the Israelites in the wilderness. In fact, if you go on down a little bit in, verse, in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, after he speaks a little bit about those who, who were led by Moses but did not enter in, he says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it for we have believed do not uh, for we who have believed do not do enter that rest as he has said so I swore my wrath they shall not enter my rest although the works were finished from the foundation of the world he paints this picture there and also in verse 11 let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience those who came out of Egypt they came out of slavery they made the trek Across the wilderness, they stood at the edge of the inheritance. How much closer can you get? And yet the parable that, that Jesus uses to explain the same thing to us, He says it's at the day of judgment, it's at the day of harvest. How much closer can you get? And yet there will be those that don't enter in. Just like there were those that didn't enter in, even though they were of that number who marched through the wilderness. And it was because of their disobedience. Because of, as we talked about this morning, because of fear. And so what Jesus goes on to conclude then, 
is that there is a reward. There is a reward for those who are faithful to him. There is a reward for the punishment as well, and that, that, or for the wicked as well, and that reward is punishment. Again, he uses uh, terminology that is very common with judgment talk. He talks about the furnace of fire. He talks about wailing and gnashing of teeth. In other parables, he does this as well. Matthew chapter 13, 49 through 50 in that parable of the dragnet. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 34 through 35, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, over and over again we see these pictures of this wailing and gnashing of teeth. He's describing that judgment scene where Jesus talks of a place prepared for the wicked. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, we see there when he says, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 45, then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. A proper proclamation of the gospel, then, we can understand from this parable, includes the very real fear that we serve a God who is planning a reward both for those who follow and obey and submit to Him and those who stand against Him. Anytime we are telling the the, the lost about the Lord, certainly we need to emphasize His love. We need to emphasize His mercy. We need to emphasize His grace. Love is a greater motivator than fear. No doubt about it. But Jesus seemed to think it was very important for the people in His day to understand the very real danger that they were in if they refused to come to the Lord as their Savior. This parable is a warning to all not to allow themselves to be influenced by the wicked one. Peter wrote that our adversary in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 is like a lion roaming around seeking to destroy us. But we can allow the Word of God to abide in us, to live in us, to to produce in us, and through that we can overcome the wicked one. We learn from this parable, then, that the kingdom of heaven will spread as people become sons of the kingdom, as people hear the message of the word and they act on the things that they hear, that, that umbrella effect is seen. as and, and throughout the scripture, we see the kingdom described in terms such as that. In the dream of Daniel, it was a rock hewn from the cliff that came down and smashed the statue What happened next? It became a mountain, a rock to a mountain. Trees, oftentimes Jesus was described as the the sprout of Jesse, and yet to become a tree that every bird of of the earth can rest upon. Over and over again, we see these pictures of the kingdom of God, the church, as something that starts off small, but grows and grows. And it does because that seed works in our lives and causes us to grow and become a seed to others as well. Whenever Jesus first came, and after His ascension, and on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see that the the, the kingdom being established. But we also see that God has a long-term goal for that kingdom. That won't fully be culminated until we all are in heaven with Him. When the Son of Man returns, with his angels, when he gathers those out of his kingdom that don't belong, and he delivers that kingdom, what is left, what is righteous, what is blessed, what is without blemish, 
to the Father. And at that time, 2 Peter chapter 1.11 tells us that we will have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus sums it up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Friends, is that our desire? You know, we, we have New Year's resolutions. I want to lose you know, X amount of weight. I want to read X amount of books. You know, what, whatever our desire is for the new year. Is our desire to shine forth like the sun? That begins in this life. Yeah, that, what he's talking about there, that, that shining forth in the kingdom of God, it's, it's a picture of heaven. But it begins today, shining in the lights of those around us, shining in the lives of, of our family and our friends. If that's our desire, then we must remember what Jesus said. In John chapter 3, verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If there is something that we can do this morning to help you with your desire to be a light to this world, to be the influence that the world needs, that only comes from allowing God to be first that influence in your life. Coming to Him in obedience. The message that is proclaimed is that what, very much what Alan spoke about in the, at the Lord's Supper talk. Romans chapter 5, when we were enemies of God. Whenever there is sin in our life, sin that has not been repented of, sin that has not been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, we are at war with Him. We are fighting against Him. Uh, Paul, on the road to Damascus, the question that he was asked was, why are you kicking against the goads? That's, that's, a, that's a, a battle scene that we think there. The idea of kicking against something. God was prodding him and he was fighting back. That describes us, too, if we have not yet come to the Lord, come to receive forgiveness of our sins, which comes through confessing Him as the Son of God and being buried with Him in baptism. He invites us, not, not me, not the church here. God invites us to die with Him, just as His Son died. His Son died physically. We're invited to die metaphorically, giving our lives over to Him, serving Him as the new master of our life. If you have not yet done that but would like to, we would certainly like to help you and assist you in that. If you have done so, but along the way you realize, I have become more like maybe those sons of the wicked. I have become an offense to others. I have been acting and, and working outside of the law of Christ. Thankfully, God is patient. We don't know how long it will be until He returns. And so if there's something we can do to help you to turn your life back to Him, won't you please let it be known? Come forward as we stand and as we sing.